Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard. Episode 24, Part 1, Know When to Hold Them as we explore the persons, entities, and governments who have been damaged, some beyond repair, by Wirecard and the fallout from its scandal. The Wirecard Saga is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Box. Welcome back to another episode of the Wirecard Saga, where I'm joined by my colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Mikhail, what do we have today? Thanks, Tom. I know we had a little gap there whilst the Compliance Podcast Network moved into its swanky new studio. Congrats, Tom. But folks, we're back. I've got all new developments in the Wirecard saga. And really, where would we all be with this political, economic, intelligent soap opera if everyone did their job? I'm calling this episode Know When to Hold Them because I'm going to finally take you listeners on the exploration of online gambling. So this episode, it's a two-parter because we dive into online gambling and Wirecard's nexus to it. But there are some players holding their cards pretty close to their vestment in this high-stakes match, and one or two who have folded. So let's hear some of the more outrageous developments from the various participants in this game before we dive into the specific topic of online uh, casinos. First up, disgraced former CEO Marcus Braun. Now, Herr Braun has actually won a few early hands recently. What game was he playing? Seems he sued insurance giant Chubb to compel them to pay out under Wirecard's DNO policy for its executives. Listeners, quick aside for those of you not up on your DNO. DNO is directors and officers insurance. Companies and individual execs can purchase this liability insurance for their corporate executives to help them protect their personal assets and that of their spouses, such as Frau Sylvia Braun, wife of Marcus. Basically, these policies protect personal assets in the event the execs are personally sued by employees, vendors, competitors, investors, customers, other third parties for actual or alleged wrongful acts in managing a company. Operative word here is managing. Now, DNO will also protect a company, such as picking up legal fees, settlements, and other costs. Basically, DNO would kick in as the financial backstop for any standard indemnification provision in an exec's contract with that company, which holds officers harmless for losses due to their role in the company, right? So far, so good. Savvy officers and directors usually require the company they help lead to provide, well, both indemnification and DNO insurance. Now, typically, DNO will kick in if the officers are sued related to the company being accused of such things, such as breach of fiduciary duty that results in, say, financial losses or bankruptcy, misrepresentation of company assets, misuse of company funds, fraud, poor corporate governance, theft of trade secrets, bribery, the list goes on. You get the idea. But the acts DNO policies don't cover 
those that are illegal or result in illegal profits. I know, you're trying to understand how fraud isn't illegal. This comes back to corporate acts versus those of the individual. If the executive is found guilty of engaging in the illicit behavior personally or having personally illegally profited from the acts, then they'll find themselves either excluded from the DNO coverage or paying back the costs the policy did handle leading up to the executive's conviction. So Braun sued Chubb to get them to pony up his DNO coverage under the policy Wirecard had purchased for him. Specifically, given that his assets are frozen, he needed Chubb to pick up his legal bills. And we all know good defense ain't cheap. Criminal court for the wealthy is a world away from what regular folks experience. And the euro counter on Braun's legal team's desk is spinning by the second. According to German law news outlet Juva, Braun has retained no fewer than five law firms to defend him and and asked Chubb to pick up the tab for all of them and for a public relations firm he's hired as part of his dispense strategy. Now, Chubb apparently fought tooth and nail, who would blame them, not to have to pay out. Typically not always sympathetic to insurance companies, but can you imagine what five top law firms are costing plus PR? Oh, In January of this year, Braun won an initial ruling in a Frankfurt court ordering Chubb to cover his legal costs. But Chubb appealed the ruling. Now, that appeal is still pending, but that hasn't stopped Braun from suing Chubb in a couple of other DNO policy-related suits, two of which he won against Chubb just the other week. So, he may have won one hand, but Herr Braun must now also contend with a new revelation. Austrian news outlet Zaxak surfaced documents, witness statements, and photos proving a connection between Braun and Trevor Trena. And if you don't know who Trena is, he was Donald Trump's appointed ambassador to Austria during the last U.S. administration. Now, documents show that Trainer maintained close contact with Braun and Alexander Schutz, our friend Schutz, as well as with an Austrian OVP party lobbyist, Wolfgang Wassum. Now, this is where the relationship really takes kind of a smarmier turn. Only months after taking up the ambassadorship and moving to Vienna, Wirecard was apparently offering Trainer a bank account or two or three. Emails have turned up that show a Wirecard bank employee telling colleagues of having identified a new PEP as a potential new customer. They identified Trainer as not only a U.S. ambassador, but as CEO of an online luxury platform called If Only, which Trainer was still running while serving as ambassador. Now, If Only and Trainer were both given Wirecard bank accounts. And a day after the in, an inquiry by an employee at Wirecard, CFO, or then CFO, Alexander von Noop and Wirecard board member Rainer Vexler approved accounts being opened for Trena. And then Trena started hanging out with Marcus Braun. <laughs> Unusual timing. On multiple occasions, documents show Trena and Braun socializing on a personal level. In November, and again in December of 2018, Trena is invited to a private, quote, Falstaff wine tasting hosted by Rossum, with Braun in attendance. 
Did Bron tell Trina he would not lend him a penny? Or was the world Bron's oyster to be opened with no penny to be had from Trina? <laughs> Who was the bigger fool? Private meals and events between Bron and Trina became known as wine tastings. According to records, these two had countless private events. In fact, one was particularly ill-timed. On June 18th, 2020, you know, when Braun was replaced by James Fries after the wirecard ship had hit its iceberg, you know, days before the official implosion, Braun and Trena were on the calendar for tacos and cocktails. Oh, cute thematic private parties. Pin that. Did Trena have a spare sombrero for Braun when he came through the door? Did Braun bring miniature umbrellas for the drinks and a piñata for friends' delights? So instable. In reciprocity, in addition to those wirecard accounts, Braun shared his Vienna Opera Ball box, complete with, quote, female company, not believed to be Mrs. Braun. Heavy drinking was said to ensue, although one ungrateful guest observed that the champagne Marcus Braun served was not a particularly good vintage. Meow. And remember the cost of the PR firm Braun is demanding Chubb Insurance pay for? Well, it's not just to tidy up his reputation for hanging out with Trump appointees or serving inferior champagne. Although, still, that is rather an egregious crime. According to said PR advisor, Braun is just flabbergasted by all of these allegations about Wirecard. PR guru Dirk Matz told multiple German news outlets last week that his client Braun bears absolutely zero responsibility for the myriad of crimes Wirecard has been linked to. Those billions lost? Don't look at Braun. Completely innocent is the new refrain. Apparently, now that Dirk is telling us, it must be true. Dirk says Braun only learned of the frauds from reading the investigator's files. Oh, sure. A quote from Herr Metz. Metz. Marcus Braun attaches decided importance to the statement that he knew nothing of these shadow structures and embezzlements. Yes, Dirk, I expect Marcus does place decided importance on this claim of ignorance. Otherwise, he's facing decades of prison time. Just about anyone sitting atop the wirecard pile of guano is likely clutching at straws and trying to emphasize their studied obliviousness to the crimes that emanated from that organization. Metz went on to say that Braun isn't a suitable key witness. Huh? No, not a suitable key witness. No, of course not. How would the CEO of a major DAX company be expected to know anything about the goings-on at the corporation? This is why Chubb is stuck paying top dollar to Metz on behalf of Braun. He's got all the best answers. Braun apparently wants to lay all of the misdeeds of Wirecard at the feet of Marsalek. The whole schnitzel. Now, Metz did make one very curious statement. He said of Braun, and this is a quote, he can certainly say a lot about the whereabouts of the money. Therefore, no one has greater interest in Marsalek turning himself in or being caught than Marcus Braun. Dear Cunny, I'm confused. First you tell us Marcus knows absolutely nothing at all about any of these goings-on at Wirecard. But now you say he knows the locations of the missing billions? If he knows where the proceeds of these frauds or crimes are being held, 
It suggests he knew quite a bit about how these monies were flowing out of the company. So which is it? St. Marcus the Innocent? Or Herr Braun the Defendant, hoping to create doubt in the mind of the future judge who will hear this sordid tale by blaming the absentee co-defendant Marsalek? The old divide-and-conquer strategy. If it were just the two of them, said approach might work, but there are a whole lot of other people with versions of the story that aren't as flattering to Braun. Dirk, do you know there are other players in this game? You do know that, right? <laughs> and speaking of stories that may not be music to Braun's ears, remember the insolvency administrator Michael Yaffa? Well, he set off shockwaves the other day. How? He told German media he wants to reclaim the dividends paid out by Wirecard for the years 2017 and 2018. You know, the years Wirecard stock was through the roof and the payouts were, well, substantial. You see, under German law, when fraudulent companies file for insolvency, it is mm, standard practice that the insolvency administrator correct the false balance sheets and consequently, consequently, also correct any tax payments and profit distributions. Now, the average Wirecard shareholder wouldn't likely have to cough up proceeds. But there is a provision in the DSW law, as it's known, that shareholders only have to repay profit shares if they knew or as a result of negligence did not know that they were not entitled to subscribe to the shares that they were not entitled to receive them. If they knew of the fraud. Oops. Marcus better keep playing that innocent card. A substantial portion of the Braun fortune came from those dividends. Thus far, creditors and shareholders have filed claims for more than 12 billion euros. At the same time, a fundamental legal dispute about the claims of shareholders in the insolvency proceedings has arisen. Given that shareholders are essentially co-owners of a company, not creditors who have given loans, ergo, Yava has stated on several occasions it may be necessary to have the court clarify as to whether the shareholders have claims in the insolvency proceedings at all. And speaking of claims, thus far, some 280 lawsuits from Wirecard investors have been filed against EY in Stuttgart Regional Court. Total ask? Mm, roughly 42 million euros in damages, which honestly for a multi-billion dollar big four isn't all that daunting. At least half of these cases, the court has referred them to the Munich courts, although Stuttgart's going to keep uh, examining jurisdiction, uh, the remaining uh, examinations uh, for many of the other suits. In addition to these suits, British litigation financier Litfin has publicly claimed it has now amassed 20,000 claims from Wirecard victims and is preparing lawsuits, quote, mainly against EY. Litfin told the press, don't worry, we're also looking at suits against Wirecard, the company, and its former board members. And handling the litigation against EY on this class action? Pinsent Masons. So, do any of these claims stand a snowball's chance? As a matter of fact, EY has lost a number of hands of late in this tournament. 
You see, the Bundestag IC retained a team of auditors from Rodel and Partners, led by Martin Wambach, the parliamentary special investigator, who previously was with a global law firm that repped Senjo, but that's another story. Wambach and his team reviewed some 90 gigs of EY data that included internal working papers and some 40,000 emails. They were tasked with only examining audits EY conducted of Wirecard 2014 to 2019. So not the largest by today's East discovery standards, but substantive enough. And the results? Well, the primary report to the IC was damning enough a copy of which slipped out to German media outlets Der Spiegel and Handelsblatt. But then came a 50-page annex to the report that was even more incriminating, and it too managed to find its way into the hands of journalists. Now, the Rodel report is classified, but the IC has already said the findings are so condemnatory they want the report to be published publicly and they're going to court to seek dispensation to release it to the public. EY is naturally fighting to suppress it. Here's the gist of what Wambach and the auditing team found. It concluded that EY's audits of Wirecard between 2014 and 2016 suffered from, quote, serious shortcomings. They said EY failed to identify fraud risk indicators, didn't fully implement professional guidelines, and largely just took Wirecard executives' word for whenever a question needed an answer. And the addendum? It spoke only to the 2018 audit EY conducted of Wirecard. Key findings, minimal data upon which EY relied. Bottom line? They phoned it in. But there's more. Wambuck observed there were clear inconsistencies in documents from Wirecard that EY reviewed, and these should have triggered concern with the auditors. But EY? They didn't even directly validate balance confirms. They didn't implement international accounting standard guidelines that had gone into effect in that same year, 2018. They didn't collect and analyze quantitative data. In fact, Wambach confirmed that EY never checked Senjo or Al-Alam, you know, Wirecard's primary TPAs that triggered this whole disaster. The confirmations submitted by the trustee at EY were also a little mm, odd. For one thing, there was a German date format on them. Now, these are confirmations, right, coming from the trustee overseas. There was a German date format on them. The document had been received by EY on April 11th, 2019, but issued on April 12th, 2019. <laughs> was, was this some adjustment for crossing the international dateline? And this oddly dated statement only confirmed balances, but did not note account numbers or the bank holding the account. Seriously, the confirm didn't have a bank account number or even a bank name on it. It was just a balance <laughs> with a post date. Uh, how does that work? And this <laughs> but EY thought that looked okay. As Wambach dryly noted, all of this could, quote, cast doubt on the reliability of the document. And it doesn't appear that EY bothered to investigate these anomalies. 
In fact, turns out EY never even checked the balance of the trustee account, said to hold some 976 million euros at OCBC Bank in Singapore. Nope, didn't bother. And then the Rodel report called attention to some seriously bizarre behavior by the EY audit team. And listeners, what do we always say on this show? You can't make this shite up. EY employees set about making test purchases via websites that were billed via Wirecard third-party partners. According to the Rodel report, EY employees had, for example, taken out a short-term subscription to AsianLoveAffairs.com for $10. The auditors also purchased bitcoins and a breathalyzer, which they had shipped to EY's German headquarters in Munich. (laughs) What the hell? Was EY using a high school teenagers to conduct this audit? Bitcoins, Asian porn site subscription, and a breathalyzer? This screams horny 15-year-old boy, not professional licensed auditor. Again, one has to appreciate Wombuck's dry wit here. In writing about these test purchases, he notes, the quality of the audit evidence does not appear sufficient and appropriate. (laughs) Really? Oh, you can't make this up. Whilst plaintiff's counsel is doing the cha-cha over this publication, the IC was livid. MP Florian Tonkar said, quote, The addendum consists of 50 pages of dynamite for EY. The auditing shortcomings exceeded the committee's worst expectations. He expressed total disbelief that EY could have done so little and missed so much. MP Lisa Paws called the Rodel report appalling and then went on to say, After today, it is hard to imagine that courts won't see gross negligence with regard to EY. Ouch. EY is going to love rehearing that quote in trial. And then, Your Honor, MP Paws said, So now the IC is asking the German Federal Supreme Court to declassify the report and allow its publication fully unredacted so we can all read all the grotty details. That's right, listeners. This could be some bedside reading for you. And what has EY had to say to any of this? Listeners, I know you've been assiduously following EY's machinations for the past year, and some of you have even been questioning them read their work on Wirecard for far longer. Remember, several key e-wires involved in the Wirecard audit had refused to testify. Then a German court ruled they couldn't claim confidentiality as their basis for refusal. So over the past couple of weeks, the IC called a couple of them back. Now, the IC has had some interesting folks in general on the testifying docket recently. The IC has now said they intend to keep calling witnesses likely through September of this year. Talk about throwing a spanner in the works of the German election campaigning. Uh, Who all have they recently heard from? Franz Endel, former in-house counsel to Wirecard. Bernard Koch, head of Department 7 in the Federal Chancellery, i.e. Federal Intelligence Services. 
coordination, uh, uh, Bruner Call, president of the Federal Intelligence Service, Sabine Heinziger, PA to Marsalek, Wolf Matthias, chairman of the supervisory board for Wirecard, and EY's Christian Mutt and Gregor Fichtelberger. Let's start with the EYers. Christian Mutt appeared, appeared two weeks ago. He's on the forensic side at EY, but Mutt showed up with his counsel and was advised to not make so much as an opening statement to the IC. They were not impressed, by the way. Say nothing. Moot was counseled to answer no question. He claimed, via his counsel, that any answers he had to the IC's questions would refer to classified documents. Therefore, his statement and answers to questions were only possible for him in closed session. The committee members argued for public questioning and tried to save the public session. What followed was what Deputy Chairman Hans Michaelbach called a ping-pong game of arguments over procedural issues, and it was tedious, folks. <clears throat> While committee members were of the opinion that the witness could very well have to answer questions about what was already public, it was hardly classified, they were unclassified documents, Moot and his legal counsel retreated to the fact that this would always touch on, wait for this, EY's trade secrets. Seriously? You're asserting trade secrets? I've worked a lot of economic espionage and theft of trade secrets matters in my career, and this has got to be one of the most absurd claims for asserting trade secrets I've ever heard. Your auditors, you boneheads, there are literally tax books and publish guidance from regulators. There are professional standards that you all have to adhere to. Literally, there are public auditing professional practice standards you have an obligation to meet. There is nothing proprietary in your methods. Even your employees know this, when, which is why they move so easily between big four because, and even the second-tier audit firms. The audit methods are interchangeable. They have to be. There's a standard. You don't have trade secrets? You know how the Rodel report called out the fact that you'd failed to meet the standards? Okay, yeah. If you can call failing to adhere to the auditing standards for companies following international accounting rules, well, hey, you've created some really unique IP there. But if your claimed method rises to criminality, I'm uh, sorry to tell you, you don't get IP protection. Oh, did counsel forget to mention that? Good Lord. So, the IC struggles with Mr. Mert. They caution that, uh, this was great, they actually tell Mert, we're going to keep you here as long as it takes because MP Fabio Damasi has brought along his espresso machine. <laughs> so, they told Mert, Look, your intransigence would only inspire them to continue questioning EY employees through the fall. Finally, Moot spoke. He told the IC, We had indication of Wirecard's fraud, but no proof. There's strong circumstantial evidence that risks were not sufficiently named and adequately evaluated. Members of Parliament from several parties would later tell the press that Moot in his one statement, had managed to incriminate his own EY colleagues with that testimony.
Now, according to Moot, EY is conducting an internal investigation and revisiting its audit of Wirecard, along with external experts it's hired. Yay, more big law firm bills. Count, can't mount an internal investigation in major law firms at a major accounting firm without major big law defense counsel directing, right? Banner year for German big law. Okay, or years, decades. <laughs> and then just last week, the IC had EY's Gregor Fichtelberger in to testify. Now, Fichtelberger's higher up on the food chain. Short version for him, absolutely zero cooperation. Fichtelberger spent more time talking to his counsel than he did answering any question posed to him by the IC. <clears throat> An EY leader demonstrating integrity, accountability, and transparency. Oh, wait. That's just one of those things they say in their marketing brochures. I am quoting directly from EY's Global Assurance Quality Enablement Leader and Global Audit Committee Chairperson, Jay Paulson, from his 2019 missive titled, Why Every EY Auditor is Accountable for Audit Quality. Quote, the EY organization has embedded a culture of accountability and continuous improvement at all levels of the audit process. With the accounting profession under more scrutiny than ever, boy, you've got that right, Jay, the EY organization has a duty, a duty, did anyone inform Fichtelberger of said duty? In serving the public interest to help EY people take responsibility for performing quality work at all times. To achieve and sustain this, the organization has embedded, embedded a culture of accountability at all levels of the audit process. A culture of doing the right thing, yada, 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 etc., etc., and so on. Fittelberger seems to have an unusual interpretation of what taking responsibility and doing the right thing means. EY actually issues annual transparency reports, so I can't help but wonder if their lack of cooperation with the Bundestag IC and a Wirecard will feature in this year's report. When later asked about Wombach's report, EY's spokesperson stated the firm couldn't comment on the contents of the report as, quote, EY will incorporate the results of the investigator's evaluation into its own assessment of the facts, as well as the findings of the other investigative authorities. I love assessment of the facts. Is this, is this one of those, like, post-fact, make-your-own-truth sort of assessments? Regardless of the outcome, EY claims it is, quote, working intensively on measures and initiatives to strengthen confidence in the quality of its audits. No doubt this total F-up will be transformed into an internal teachable moment while its managing partners continue to keep stumm. <laughs> but the IC did have greater success with Marsalek's formal personal assistant, Sabine Heinzinger. As Heinzinger had maintained Marsalek's diary for more than seven years, she at least knew a fair amount with respect to the names of the business, business partners Marsalek kept company with, the meetings he planned, the trips he took. On the other hand, she knew almost nothing about the content of the conversations Marsalek had, or even Marsalek as a person. The day he vanished, or no, day before he vanished, sorry, 
Marsalek had ordered a copy of his entire email archive. Yeah, Yanni needed his electronic Rolodex, promises made in writing, a reminder of what was said when. So on June 17th, 2020, he walked off with his complete archive. Huh. Almost sounds as if he's planning his defense, or wanted to keep contact details of all those he needed to send notices telling them to shut down their offshore LLCs and bank accounts. Quick, shut down the hundreds of accounts and entities in Cyprus, Mauritius, the UK, BVI, and, oh, open new ones in, say, the Seychelles, or Malta, or Nevis. According to Heinzinger, Marsalek apparently had a strange softbot for the Russian messaging service Telegram. In fact, so much so that this oftentimes was the only way to reach him on business, she said. All right, look, I'm a privacy freak too, but really? End-to-end encryption for P2P conversations for business? Always? The only way to reach this guy? By her own account, Heinzinger really didn't have a lot of access to Marsalek as the human being or really gain any insight into his personal matters, despite working for him for seven years. But... She said, yeah, all right, he wasn't completely unemotional, but this is my favorite part of all. To her relief, he wasn't the sort of chummy boss who tells you about his weekend on Monday or with whom you feel obligated to talk about private things. And she found his lack of chumminess very pleasant. Listeners, (laughs) this is what your admin really thinks. Please don't tell me about your personal business. I could care less. But beyond that, she really couldn't offer much in the way of information to the IC. Later the same day, the IC heard from Franz Endel, uh, counsel to Wirecard. Now, he said he'd been approached by Wirecard in 2016 to defend them against, you know, the alleged market manipulation, those pesky short sellers. And he had maintained a long-standing, trusting working relationship with Munich senior public prosecutor Frau baumler Hassel. And so, claiming to have known her for nearly 15 years, he reported to her the Wirecard's alleged concern to being attacked by said short shellers. The threats perceived by Wirecard in this way, he said, he took very seriously. At the time, people at the firm believed in his client's story. And he, quote, forwarded things as I saw them to the public prosecutor's office, specifically Frau baumler Hassel. He had described the acute threatening situation to her. I didn't sort things out. Whether things were fake, I don't know. I can't accuse the client of supplying me with fake things. And then he said, yeah, in retrospect, maybe I was deceived by the former board members, Marsalek and Dr. Braun, Marcus. Yeah, now come to think of it, he mused to the IC in hindsight, Maybe some professional skepticism wouldn't have gone amiss. (laughs) Well, if that didn't put the IC off, let's hear what some of the other interviewees had to say. Bruno Kahl, president of the Federal Intelligence Service, you know it as the German BND, told the IC in his testimony that until Wirecard's insolvency last year, you know, June 2020, we're, getting up, we're coming up to the anniversary, and yes, we have something special planned. The BND had no evidence of money laundering activities at the payment service provider. Seriously. It was only since the accounting scandal became known that the BND has been doing intelligence work on the case in accordance with its mission profile. 
and, well, admittedly, a fair number of inquiries coming from the German government and the parliament have reached the BND's offices since last summer. No surprise there. But Call observed, so look, as a domestic German company with numerous German citizens as employees, Wirecard couldn't have been our subject of intelligence activities because, you know, by German foreign intelligence services, per Germany's laws, we can't look at them. And no, but Herr Call, all those foreign business partners, including those in Syria, Libya, Malta, Dubai, the Philippines, Mauritius, Cyprus, and so on, those sure sure could have been targets for you. Yeah, BND could have been all over those. What about those hundreds of shell companies Ray Akhavan set up in the UK through which monies ran to and from Wirecard accounts? Once again, right there, BND could have looked at it. That didn't pick your interest? What about the key executives? Marsalek, Braun, who are Austrian, not German. They're not German citizens. You're not precluded from looking at them. Call said the BND had not been asked by government or any authorities for advice in the foreign trade area either. Merkel goes to China to advocate for Wirecard, whose intention at that time is to acquire a Chinese company that had already run afoul of regulators there, and nobody consults with the Intel folks? Huh? Let me guess, the BND has never looked at the ownership structure behind Nord Stream 2 either. Call also told the IC that the BND had never received any requests from open sources to look at Wirecard. Nor had there been, wait for this one, any reports of money laundering. Now, this last bit is just belief-defying. It rises to the level of total incompetence by two different agencies. We know that Germany's FIU received dozens upon dozens of tips, reports, and SARS alleging Wirecard was engaged in money laundering. How do we know? Because the FIU told the Bundestag They even provided the statistical breakdown year over year of complaints received about Wirecard. Apparently, the BND and the FIU don't actually speak to one another. And folks, this is a fairly unusual arrangement for an intelligence agency and an FIU. When German federal police received the MLAT from US DOJ for that raid on Wirecard a few years back, That didn't prompt the BND to take a second look? When foreign intelligence services filed requests for assistance, including seeking information from Germany's FIU and Justice Ministry for cases being built in other jurisdictions, that didn't make the heads of certain BND departments sit up and take note? Hell, even Austria's intelligence service was looking at Wirecard, just for all the wrong reasons. My God! Russia's doing the hokey-pokey with Wirecard on the BND's front steps, and the service is looking out the window pondering whether the daisies need watering? Some of its former top officials were being played by Austrian intelligence, and the BND didn't know of it? Call did offer a closed session with the IC to fill them in on some of what they've turned up in the past few months, you know, now that they're aware of Wirecard. Bloody hell. So the IC shaking its collective head in disbelief again. 
pointed to the results of another report it commissioned from the German Court of Auditors regarding just how well various government agencies handled Wirecard over the years via via their respective remits. The Court of Auditors, well, they drew a devastating conclusion. The responsible ministries and authorities acted too late and hesitantly. Are we surprised with this conclusion? Now, the IC also heard responses from several federal agencies to questions they'd posed about Wirecard, very specific questions. The federal government admitted that Wirecard AG has accounts with Wirecard Bank AG. But they conceded, oh, good grief, we, the federal German government, don't actually know how many accounts Wirecard AG has with Wirecard Bank. Folks, <laughs> this Wirecard debacle has been going for more than a year. I mean, realistically, it's been going <laughs> since inception of Wirecard. We're talking nearly 20 years now, folks. And you still don't know even the basics, such as how many bank accounts the primary entity under scrutiny holds are held at its own bank? If you're, if you're unclear on how to perform this sort of review... German government, call me. Then Poffin responded to IC questions about its whistleblower system. And listeners, you already know this is not going to flatter Boffin, right? Okay, so just how bad is it? And compliance officers with large institutions? This is a teachable moment. Boffin told the IC that year over year since 2016, when they first instituted their whistleblower hotline, they've experienced substantial growth in the number of complaints they field. In 2016, they went from 124 whistleblower tips to 1,319 in 2020. Now, they identified 224 of that 1,300 plus as being irrelevant or lacking merit, leaving them with 1,095 tips to investigate further. And to handle these exploratory investigations... Boffin cheerfully told the IC they have fewer than three people assigned. Yeah, their written response to the IC stated they had staffing of 2.89, not quite sure how you do that with a human, full-time employees to handle the thousand-plus legitimate whistleblower tips they've received last year. Boffin even employed an external consultancy to attest to their appropriate handling of whistleblower complaints. Uh, But unfortunately, the consultant's report identified a number of deficiencies. So Boffin hangs its head in shame again and is undertaking yet another reform plan. (laughs) And speaking of whistleblowers, I'm sure many of you saw the Financial Times trotted out the whistleblower that brought McCrum the initial evidence and sent him on the trail of wirecard fraud in Singapore a couple of years back. Pav Gill was general counsel to Wirecard Asia in Singapore. Now, there's some interesting things about this article. The FT's article expends a fair amount of ink on Gill's claim of feeling persecuted. He says he was forced out of the company after Wirecard stonewalled an internal investigation after only having been in-house counsel for less than a year at Wirecard Asia. It's an interesting account, as the internal investigation Gill refers to is that which ultimately led to the Raja Antan report, which was published in May 2018, only months after Gill had joined. 
the prompting of the investigation by the uh, Raja Antan? Two Wirecard employees alleging fraud within Wirecard Asia. So while supposedly the internal investigation was stonewalled, the R&T report was published not long after Gill joined. It was already in progress when he came on board. And he would leave Wirecard in October 2018, long after the report had already been completed. And it wasn't Gill who led the internal investigation. It was the deputy GC for compliance, Dan Steinhoff. What the FT article doesn't discuss are Singapore's regulations of attorneys under that country's Evidence Act. Specifically, Section 128 provides that no advocate or solicitor is permitted, without their client's express consent, to disclose any communications made to them in the course and for the purpose of their employment as such advocate or solicitor by or on behalf of their client or to even state the contents or condition of any document or to disclose any advice given in the course and for the purposes of such employment. And this prohibition extends to legal counsel employed by corporate entities as defined under Singapore's Companies Act. Now, understand, in many jurisdictions, there is a crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Often federal-level laws prevail over ethical rules governing the scope of attorney-client privilege and confidentiality. But Singapore, under its legal profession or professional conduct rules for lawyers, the exceptions to the client confidentiality rules only provide a crime-fraud exception in judicial or other official proceedings. Now, this is not to suggest Gill should have brushed the concerns of Wirecard Asia under the rug. Far from it. As a lawyer, first and foremost, one is an officer of the court, and that confers certain obligations above those of the client. But it does raise questions about violations of the professional conduct rules. Gill admits to not only leaking documents to the FT, those which supported false business partners and invoicing, and eschewing taking his concerns and said evidence to Singaporean regulators, but to also engaging on social media under a fake name and getting into Twitter flame wars with others online. And here we wonder why whistleblowers sometimes get a bad rap. One can't help but wonder why Gill, an attorney, thought only of the Singaporean police, an option he says he dismissed, and then turned to the FT rather than taking it to the logical regulator, the Monetary Authority of Singapore known as Moss. Gill gave the FT the Raja Anton report. But we know from a motion filed by the Singapore Attorney General's office back in March 2019, Singapore's Commercial Affairs Department, from their investigative wing, had already received information about and were investigating Wirecard Asia back in early 2018, maybe earlier. R&T's Raja Anton's report findings were made public when the law firm sent its letter to Wirecard's board back in March 26, 2019. But in the FT story of Gill, no mention is made of the dozen or so other whistleblowers who reported Wirecard over the years prior to and concurrent to 2018 and who didn't take their stories to the press, but to regulators in different parts of the world. In fact, 
They also neglected to mention the report on Wirecard Asia and the Dodgy O'Sullivan connections. The Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation had already published back in January 2018. Hmm. And speaking of cooperating with authorities, over in Austria, the Vienna Public Prosecutor's Office appears to be making greater progress. Thanks to Martin Weiss and others who have been detained related to the BVT and Wirecard scandals in that country, new charges, bribery charges have now been brought against Marsalek. I'm sure he's really sweating this one. The public prosecutor in their filing has alleged Marsalek paid bribes to Austrian officials, including those in the Austrian Federal Criminal Police Office. And he's also charged with inciting Austrian officials to abuse their official authority. Gosh, add another crime against Wirecard, uh, <laughs> only uh, hardly going to be a penalty, right? Uh, authority, Austrian authorities have confirmed that much of the information Marsalek and Wirecard obtained from those bribed officials was used to build up Wirecard's business. Oh, well. Gosh, I guess that would meet most provisions. And, and the core business confirmed by the authorities? Wirecard having generated most of its revenues from third-party providers of porn and gambling. And with that, listeners, let's head to the table and get some dice tumbling. Tom, we're going to close this first part of the episode out. Listeners, it's time to shift to part two of this episode. Know when to hold them. Because we're about to delve into just how deeply Wirecard was entwined with the online gambling world. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. You've been listening to Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, The Wirecard Saga on Tom Fox's award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. I'll see you in episode, part two of this episode, where we're going to spin the wheel of fortune and, oh, the goodies on offer. Get your cards in a row. Stack them up and stack them high. Get your chips wagering. Let's go. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again in the new year. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.